Okay, so I guess we can get started. So when we last left on Friday, we were de we had said that we were going to stop the first third of the course and that monoclonal antibodies would be something that you could be responsible for because we really need to catch, well, I really need to catch up because remember, when's our first test? Two weeks? So we've got to get on, get on track here. Monoclonal antibodies were, are pretty straightforward. Just sort of look through the lecture. For a monoclonal antibody, basically what we're talking about is if this is our globular protein, and we have all these different epitopes on it, Right. The polyclonal response would be to have antibodies that would be able to recognize every single one of these epitopes on the surface of any globular protein. And a monoclonal antibody technology is going to allow us to isolate that one protein or isolate this protein, right? this antibody molecule, to be able to make a monoclonal antibody, a single antibody. So just sort of read through it. So to continue our sort of introduction, the first third of the course introduction to the immune response, we're going to sort of leave, not sort of, we are definitely going to leave antibodies and antigens, the more specific part of the immune response, and we're going to start talking about other aspects of the immune response, and we'll start by talking about nonspecific defenses. And these nonspecific defenses, hmm, you know, are sort of common sense sort of things that you can think about. And they are things that basically deal more with the innate immune response. Remember we said we had two sort of types of immune response, innate immunity and adaptive or specific immunity. We've been talking about antigens and antibodies and that's specific immunity. And after the first test, we're going to be talking about specific immunity basically for the rest of the time together. But for now, and in this part of the, of the introduction, let's start looking at some of these innate responses and more specifically these nonspecific defenses and then when we're done with this by the time Friday comes and next week we can start looking at the basic cellular component of the immune system. So if we talk about nonspecific defenses, as its name implies, these are things that the body or systems in the body are going to be able to deal with an invader very non-specifically. It has nothing to do with a specific epitope, doesn't have anything to, well, part of it will have to do with antibody molecules, but it's going to be those defenses that are set up and waiting an invader so that the body is going to be able to respond almost immediately. We'll see later on, it takes a while for antibody molecules to be generated. So these innate nonspecific defense mechanisms are things that are online and ready to go. And we can look at a bunch of these, and some of these things you might not even consider to be an immune response. And, you know, for good reason. When you're thinking about some sort of a, of a mechanical barrier, right, when you're thinking about coughing and sneezing, a lot of times coughing and sneezing are, you know, things you have from a cold, you're clearing your throat, you inhale a moth, you know, something takes place to make you sort of cough or sneeze, but as you're coughing or sneezing, you are moving, right, potential invaders around. Everybody has, are you familiar with that, that famous picture, right, when they first 
perfected high-speed photography where you can see that, that person sneezing and you can see all those droplets, all that, all that you know, sort of nasal droplets leaving the nose, right? So there we're trying to get rid of invaders. So something as easy as coughing or sneezing is sort of a, a non-specific defense. We have a whole bunch of surface barriers. The major sort of surface barrier that we have, you know, as part of our, our system is the skin. It's our largest organ. It's a physical barrier. It's going to allow the inner part of the body protection from the outer sort of environment. If we didn't have our skin, I don't know, we'd be one sort of puddle of tissues and muscles and just sort of hanging out there, right? So the skin is a physical barrier. The acid pH of skin secretions is able to inhibit bacterial growth. Inside your sweat, you have antibacterial agents. One of the, one of the great advances in surgery, right? We had said that the evolution of the, uh, that the, the studies of the immune system are basically the studies of medicine. So the history of immunology is the history of medicine. One of the major steps that people, that people discovered at the turn of the century in terms of doing so the surgical procedures was as easy as washing your hands. Right? If you're going to cut somebody open and you're going to start mucking around inside, it might be a good idea if you had washed your hands. And once they started to do that, and once they started to learn about anti antiseptic treatment, surgery sort of recoveries and successful surgeries were off the chart just by washing your hands. So these are sort of simple things. This is nonspecific. That acid secretion in your skin is going to be able to inhibit most any bacteria. It's going to be able to deal with most any sort of, of fungi. And it's a good sort of first step in protecting the inside of the body. Next up, mucous membranes. Eh, you don't think so much about your mucous membranes, right? They're there. You don't think so much about them. Sticky mechanical barriers that are going to trap, back, trap bacteria. You breathe in through your nose, right? All your, all your sinuses are covered in mucus. All of your lungs are covered in mucus as you're breathing in through your mouth and we're letting air inside. Right? We have cilia on the surface of the lung that's going to push out trapped debris to the mouth. And from the mouth, Right? You can't stop yourself from swallowing. It's one of those anatomic, or anatomic, not anatomic. What do you call it? It's something that you can't, you have no control of. Autotomic, right? Where are my neurobiologists? Alexia would kill me if I couldn't remember that one, right? Try to tell your heart to stop beating. It's not going to work. Try to, stop, try to tell yourself to stop breathing. It's not going to work. Try to force yourself to stop swallowing. It's not going to work, right? You're going to move all that scientific term, yuck, and stuff, right, from out of your lungs and from inside your mouth. You're going to swallow it, and it's going to go into your stomach. And once it gets into your stomach, it's going to start to be digested. Right? But all those mucous membranes are there to trap things. Right? You have things in your urinary tract, in your eyes, your tears. In your eyes are there to be able to stop things from coming inside, right? Your skin is your major sort of barrier, 
Right? You have this external tough member, uh, tough surface that's going to stop most things. Right? Your sebaceous glands here, that's what makes you sweat, but they're full of antibacterial sort of uh, activities and things. So you have all this nonspecific areas and nonspecific things. Gastric fluid. Right? The acid in your stomach prevents entry of pathogens by food intake. Right? You didn't think that your stomach was an immune organ. Eh, clearly it's not, but we'll, we'll take it any way we can get it, right? So you have that very acid environment in there that's clearly there to start digestion, but some of the things that it's going to digest are those, right, are those pathogens that we're taking in when we're doing these things. Right? We have a major sort of protein, lysozyme, it's a protein that kills bacteria by destroying their cell walls. Basically, it breaks down peptidoglycan, one of the major proteins of the bacteria. We can find lysozyme in a whole bunch of different places. We can find it in our tears. We can find it on, in our saliva. You can find lysosome or a protein that's very similar to lysosome in probably every animal on the planet. Lysosome has been on, on the surface helping eukaryotes right, for hundreds of millions of years. You can find lysosome in clams and any other sort of invertebrate or, or molecules that are very similar to lysosome in almost every animal phyla on the planet. You can find, right, sort of these natural defenses. Right, the respiratory tract with mucus, the digestive tract, the digestive tract, stomach activity, bacteria, right, the alkaline pH in the intestine, right, tears and lysosome in the eyes and in the skin. We have those uh, antibacterial products coming from secretions, right, all sorts of areas that we have things. And when you look at your tears, for example, right, there's all sorts of different antimicrobial compounds that are in there. Right? We talked a little bit about right, IgA and IgG and IgM. You have IgA, G, and M inside your tears. Right? And there's all sorts of things like lysozyme that are inside your tears. Again, if you wanted to protect your eyes from any sort of pathogen involvement, close your eyes. It's not going to help right, if we need to maneuver our way through life but that would be a simple way to be able to protect your eyes from pathogens. We have a whole bunch of nonspecific cellular and chemical defenses. The major sort of cellular defense we have is phagocytosis, right? Eating pathogens by white blood cells. When you look at a, a simple picture of phagocytosis, we're going to be able to Right. Recognize an invader, we're going to surround that invader, we're going to engulf that invader, we're going to destroy that invader, and then we're going to get rid of that invader. Right. So this is phagocytosis, the, the, the ability of a phagocyte to be able to recognize, ingest, and destroy a pathogen. It is very nonspecific. This could be any kind of bacteria, could be any kind of fungus. It's, a, it's a, one of the major arms of our cellular defenses. Bless you. By the end of next week, we'll be talking about inflammation. 
a complex series of events that's going to be able to destroy pathogens. Everybody in this room is familiar with inflammation. When you get sick, you start to get a fever. The fever is a very non-specific sort of defense mechanism that your body is using. The, your cellular thermostat is normally set to about 37 degrees, right, 98.6. One of the responses that your body is going to do is going to increase your thermostat. It's going to make you get a fever of 101, 102, 103, 104. Right? If you have this fever for a long period of time, something's wrong, you have to go to the hospital, but a normal sort of response, this, not of, this normal sort of febrile response is your body's reaction to getting bacteria out of their comfort zone. Okay? Bacteria have evolved over the eons to like a nice cozy temperature of 37 degrees, 98.6. So we're increasing our thermostat to be able to interfere with that coziness that these bacteria have, right? And that's one of the first steps in the inflammatory response. Besides those cellular defenses, we have a bunch of chemical defenses. We've already talked about one of the major chemical defenses that we have, and that's the antibody molecule. One of the other ones, a nonspecific sort of defense mechanism, is called the complement system. Remember before when we talked about IgG and I said IgG was able to activate complement? I said put it someplace, we'll talk about it. Now we're going to talk about it. Complement is a system of plasma proteins, about 30 different types of proteins, including a bunch of inhibitors that are both in the blood and associated with cell surfaces that are going to interact to eliminate pathogens. Complement got its name from the fact that there was a substance in a blood that was helping immunoglobulin molecules to kill pathogens. Right? So the complement we're using here is something that works hand in hand with something. Right? It's not the G, you're so good looking complement. It's something that's going to be able to complement or add value to the antibody molecules. So, the major sort of nonspecific chemical defense is complement. So complement basically has three principal biological functions in terms of cytolysis, opsonization, and activation of inflammation. So, cytolysis, lysis of cells. So complement's going to be able to bind to a target cell and by itself, it's going to be able to destroy that target cell by lysis, right? Cytolysis, lysis of a cell, destruction of a cell. The other thing that complement's going to be involved with is opsonization. Complement is an opsin. We've already talked about one of the major opsins, and the, other, and the major opsin we've been talking about is antibody molecules. So an opsin is something that is capable of coding a pathogen so that it's going to be eliminated more quickly by the immune system. So we've been talking about antibody molecules as being opsins, right? Because we're going to have this FC receptor of these white blood cells are going to be able to now recognize the antibody molecule, recognize the FC portion of the antibody molecule, and 
be involved with the destruction of that pathogen. Now I'm saying the same sort of opsonic, opsonic activity can take place. Well, might as well leave this one on here, right? Because this is still going to be able to take place. And now if we have these complement molecules binding, these same white blood cells have complement receptors on their cell surface. So something that's capable of coding a pathogen. Complement receptors are going to be in, involved with the destruction, the same way through phagocytosis. So if these were antibody molecules and these were FC receptors, the phagocyte here would still be capable of recognizing the FC portion of the antibody molecule and destroying this by phagocytosis, or complement proteins are going to be able to coat and participate in the destruction of those pathogens as well. And then right, activation of the inflammatory response. We'll talk about all these ways in which the inflammatory response can be activated when we talk about inflammation. Right? And even over here, right, complement is going to be able to bind to antibody molecules and it can help to participate in the clearance of those immune complexes. Right? We talked about neutrophils being able to bind right, multivalent uh, FC receptors and neutrophils are going to be able to clear and now neutrophils are going to have complement receptors so they can also be involved with clearing of those antigen antibody complexes. Okay. So, some pretty important properties that are going to be shared by these complement molecules. The first one is that all this complement activity and all these complement molecules are going to be able to participate in specific humoral immunity right, by what's called the classical or the lectin pathway and also in natural immunity. So, specific and innate immunity, right? We have different ways in which these complement proteins are going to be able to be involved with clearance of pathogens. Right? So we have at least three different ways that these complement molecules are going to be involved. And we'll talk about the pathways in a second. So we have the classical pathway, the lectin pathway, and the alternative pathway. Right? So we have a bunch of different ways that these complement molecules are going to be able to destroy pathogens. The other things that these are all going to share is we're going to have multiple proteolytic enzymes which are going to become sequentially activated only after they are activated themselves. Right. So, what does this mean? Right? Multiple proteolytic enzymes. It means that this complement system or this complement pathway is going to be so let's just sort of make this, right, complement protein number one, complement protein number two, complement protein number three, blah, blah, blah. We don't need to talk so much about the individual ones, right? So you have these complement molecules that are inside your bloodstream, floating around inside your bloodstream, and something is going to take place that is going to activate, right, the first one. So this first one is going to become activated okay. 
and then it's going to be able to now activate complement protein number two. Complement protein number two is now going to become activated, and it's going to be able to activate complement com protein number three. and so forth and so forth and so on. We'll have this sequential activation. So it's basically a, a geometric progression. So at the unactivated ones, right, these unactivated complement proteins are floating in the bloodstream. They're not participating in any sort of activation. I'm telling you right now, I'm lying to you. Lie, I'll tell you about the lie on Wednesday. It'll take that long for me to come clean. So, these protein molecules are zymogens. They're floating around unactivated at any one point in time. Some sort of trigger. Some sort of trigger event has to take place Oh, this is a big lie, has to take place for this zymogen to become activated. So, complement protein number one becomes activated, it activates two, which become activated, it activates three. Multiple proteolytic enzymes. This activation that takes place is going to expose this active site that is now going to act on right, some sort of site over here that basically breaks it and exposes the active site okay, along and along and along and along. The other thing that takes place as these multiple proteolytic activations are happening is an amplification step. Okay. So right here, I'm showing this trigger event activating C1, which activates C2, which activates C3, but in reality, this C1 molecule can activate multiple C2s. And this C2 can activate, right, you get it? They'll tell two friends, and they'll tell two friends, and so on, and so on. So that's going to activate multiple C3s multiple C4s. Right? So we can start with this very limited initial step and we can rapidly ramp up the entire system. Right? So we can start with this inactive precursor and very quickly right, from here all the way down to here and very quickly have this system up and running. So any sort of C2 that's around, C1 can act on. Any sort of C3 that's around, C2 or act activated C2 can act on it. Right? So we get this amplification step as well. The other thing that's important when we, when we think about complement is that it's going to be very tightly regulated. Complement is a very powerful system. We have to have some sort of control to it. So we got a bunch of different soluble right, pro, uh, proteins in the blood that are complement inhibitors and a lot of the cell membrane associated proteins that are complement inhibitors as well. We need to keep it under control. 
because it is that powerful and it is that good at, at doing what it, do, what it can do. So, we talked about pathways. We have three pathways, and we have what's called the classical pathway, and the classical pathway is going to be initiated by soluble antigen-antibody complex, or by binding of antibodies to antigen on a suitable target cell. So right here, right, we, are, we have another way in which we are going to link right, the specific immune response and the innate immune response. So here on our stereotypical bacteria with our antibody binding right here, once the antibody binds to an invader, M-E-N-T. Right. Complement's going to be able to bind here, and now the, this component of the innate immune response, complement, is going to be able to participate in the destruction of that pathogen. It's only after the antibody molecule has bound there, right? Initiation of an antigen-antibody complex, right? or antibody binding. So that antigen-antibody complex, again, right, from before, could be these immune complexes that are out there as well, right, that are floating around, and complement components can bind there as well. So this is the classical pathway. We need to have an antibody present. So the antibody has got to be there already. There's another one that's very similar to the classical pathway, and it's called the lectin pathway. And the lectin pathway is going to be initiated not by antibody molecules, but it's going to be uh, initiated by a plasma lectin. And a lectin is a carbohydrate binding molecule. And the lectin itself is mannose binding lectin, or MBL. And MBL is going to bind to microbial carbohydrates, specifically mannose. Right? We don't make mannose. Eukaryotes don't make mannose. So mannose is a pretty good trigger for the immune system that there's something wrong. If there's mannose in the body, it means that there are bacteria in the body, and we've got to get in shape, right? We've got we to get going. Because the only real, right? If there's mannose around, trouble is soon to follow. So this mannose is a big trigger, and it's the lectin pathway that's involved. The third pathway is the alternative pathway. And the alternative pathway is initiated by various cell surface constituents that are foreign to the host. So we're going to be able to recognize, basically, bacterial surface components, and then the alternative pathway will become activated. Remember, we said it took, it's going to take a little bit of time for antibody molecules to be generated. We'll talk about, you know, it might take three or four or five days for antibody molecules to be generated, and those antibody molecules to be circulating in the bloodstream or circulating in the tissue spaces. 
That's part of the acquired immune response, right? Which said it take anywhere from days to weeks for the acquired immune system to be able to be turned on. We need a way to be able to respond to those invaders very quickly. We're not going to give those invaders time to become established. We're not going to give those invaders any extra time before we're out there trying to destroy them. Right, what kind of army fights by saying to the enemy, sure, come on in, get set up. We'll get to you in a little while. You want to set up? You want to get comfortable? You know, go take a while, take your load off, right? Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll fight you in a couple of days, no problem. Right? That's not the way armies, that's not the way you respond to a fight. You respond to a fight by acting immediately, right? almost instantaneously. So the classical pathway is there once antibodies are in place, but we're not going to give right, this invader time to become established. And that's where the alternative pathway comes in. The alternative pathway is going to be able to respond to that invader almost immediately. So complement and complement, the complement sort of weapons are going to be trained onto this invader from the second it is detected, rather than waiting around for antibody molecules to participate. Yes, absolutely, right? That B cell with its antigen receptor on the cell surface is going to recognize this invader. Absolutely, it's going to be turned on. Absolutely, it's going to start releasing antibody molecules. Yes, those antibody molecules are going to start to bind but complement proteins are going to be able to bind as well. So it's not like, right, this is something that people get sort of confused about when we talk about the immune system. We're talking about individual sort of responses so far, right? We're talking about these things that are called antibody molecules. Now we're talking about these things that are called complement proteins. It's not like the immune system meets an invader, and the immune system's like, uh, okay, compliment. Go try to beat that, that thing up. Go ahead, compliment. We'll be right behind you. <laughs> what? Compliment. It's not working very well. All right, antibodies, you get in there. Go ahead, antibodies, you get in there, right? No. Everything that we're talking about here is happening concurrently. So yes, Complement has recognized this invader. It's starting to build up on the surface. Yes, this B cell at the same time, right, or sooner or later, is going to be able to recognize and start releasing antibody molecules. Phagocytosis is going to start to be taking place, right? Oh, whoa, that's a pretty bad looking phagocyte, right? And these phagocytes are going to start to be involved with phagocytosis and taking part of the destruction of this invader, right? Even though we're talking about these individual things in sequential time, right, because that's what teaching is all about, unless we could break through the space-time continuum and teach everything at the same time, but even though we're talking about, right, Monday we talked about this, and Wednesday we talked about this, and Friday we talked about that, just because we're talking about it in linear time doesn't mean it's happening in linear time, right? Everything we're talking about is happening all at the same time. We're going to bring multiple attack points to this invader. 
It's not like, oh, okay, well, here comes an invader. Well, let's try to kill this invader with a bow and arrow. Uh, uh, what? It does not work? Okay, well let's, try to, well, let's try to kill this invader with a spear. What? They're wearing some kind of armor? All right, well, let's try to kill this invader with some kind of gun. What? They got really thick armor? All right, well, let's try. You get the idea, right? So all this stuff is happening at once. If complement is there and it's working, terrific. If the antibodies can get there and bind, mazel tov. If the complement components and phagocytosis is there, Absolutely, we get them all at the same time, right? So that's just an aside, right? Even though the course goes linearly, right? Everything is happening at the same time. All right, so here's our picture worth our thousand words, right? We got three different pathways. Here's the classical pathway, here's the lectin pathway, and here's the alternative pathway, right? So, in general, we don't want to get we don't want to get sort of you know caught up in all the drama that's taking place. Well, we we want the drama, but we don't want to get right. This is not a course in complementology, right? People hate compliment when you talk about it in general, and I'll tell you why in a, in a second or two. But we want to sort of just look at complement, right? Because we want to get over here, right? We want to get over to protection. We want to get over to destruction of the invader. So you can sort of see here that we have all these early things taking place, right? And here's an antigen-antibody complex, right? That's already in place. Here's that uh, mannose-binding lectin that's kind of like an antibody molecule that's already in place. Here's the alternative pathway, right? Looking for microbial surfaces, right? That are going to be able to start taking place here. But all these early events are being funneled, right, down into here. So this is one major point we're going to talk about. And from here, we're being funneled even further downstream to here. And then we're getting funneled all the way down to over here until we're able to destroy the pathogen. Okay. And that's what we want to sort of, we sort of want to concentrate on. You know, it's important to know what's happening on the, all of these th three places, but we basically need to get down to over here, right, where the immune system is being able to destroy things. So complement's going to be able to bind basically to any antigen-antibody complex that's up here. It's going to be able to bind to that lectin, and it has its own way of starting and binding to those microbial surfaces. So the other thing that you'll see is that we have similarities in the pathways, let's say. So, we have a bunch of early components, both in the classical pathway and the alternative pathway. So, in the classical pathway, we have complement molecule number one and complement molecule number two and complement molecule number four. And on the alternative pathway, we have a bunch of different, we've got to call them different names, right? We need to keep track of everything. So, here's factor B and factor D and another one called propridian. And C3 is shared by all the early, by both of the, uh, by both sides of the early components, right, in terms of the classical and the alternative. So C3 is a member of both the classical uh, pathway and the alternative pathway. And once we get to the point where we are, right, making C3, so here's C3 right here, right? So we're coming this way, and we're coming this way. So here are all the components of the alternative pathway and the components of the classical pathway. 
right? C3 is an important part. And then once we get from C3 in the early components, then we get into the terminal components. And the terminal components, the, those, those things on the other side, on the far right-hand side of, the, of that figure, are called the membrane attack complex. Right? It's a real sort of rugged sort of name. So we have C5 and 6 and 7, 8, 9, and these are all part of the membrane attack complex. Right? This is the ability of these complement molecules to start to destroy, because right? they're binding out here to start with, they're going to destroy the membrane of these pathogens. So we have a bunch of similar components in the early areas of the pathways, and we have common components in the membrane attack complex. Let's just go back here for a second. Right? So the early components, once we get this C3 made, then we're going to start working on this C5 molecule, and this C5 molecule is the first molecule in the production of the membrane attack complex. Okay. So as we're moving along and, and as we're going from place to place, right, we'll be able to see how all these things are going to take place. The other thing that we need to do, and the other thing, again, right, that gets in the way of people enjoying complement, is it sort of gets really messy. Because right? we got a whole bunch of jargon. And the other part about it that we need to look into is that over here, right, I'm starting, I'm talking about C1 and C2 and C3, and one goes to two, two goes to three, well, it ain't that easy. Because right? it really goes from C1 to C2 to C4 to C3. And it does that for historical reasons. Because back when biochemists were starting to look at this complement stuff in the blood, right, they first found this C1 molecule, and then they found this C2 molecule, and then they found this C3 molecule, and then they found this C4 molecule, right? And they were just starting to assemble all these components. And once they sort of recognized the relationship between each one of these zymogens and the new active form that's going to be able to attack and activate a zymogen, then they found that the pathway, right, there's a, there's a lot of C3 in the blood, a lot of C2, a lot of C1, not so much C4. So, right, they had to fill in the blanks later on. And no one went back and said, oh, well, why don't we just call C3, C4, and C4, because that really, right, would have made things crazy. So, right, for historical reasons, it gets a little bit murky. Then the other thing we need to talk about is we need to be able to differentiate between Right? These two molecules. We need to be able to differentiate between C1, as it's just minding its own business, right, and sort of floating through the bloodstream. And then we need to be able to talk, distinguish that from this activated C1. So you'll see in the book, when you want to activate it, when you want to talk about the active component, you put a line over the top. So this is regular old C1. This is now activated C1. The other thing that we have to keep track of is we have to keep track of these two pieces. So we're going to call C1B and we're going to call the other one C1A. Again, this is just for housekeeping, right? It's so that when we're talking about certain pieces of these complement molecules, we know where they're coming from and we know where they're going to. 
right? So those large fragments are, 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 are going to be described as the B components or the B fractions, and they're usually the ones that are going to stay a part of right, this pathway. And then this C, right, these other A components that are basically not going to be involved anymore. They will have a biological function that we will talk about on Wednesday. But for now, right, it, it, it is these larger B fragments right, that are going to be involved with the sequential activation. So we just need to get that out of the way, right? This little housekeeping things to be able to describe these individual protein components. All right? So first we're going to start with the classical pathway. And it's called the classical pathway because this was the first pathway that was discovered. Right? The alternative pathway was discovered second. Right? That's just, they could have called it the other pathway, but it's called the alternative pathway because it is a different sort of a pathway. And the, and the classical pathway is going to start with right, the C1 molecule. So, I kind of lied a little bit. Right? C1 is actually right, a sort of protein complex. When people first isolated C1, they, weren't bio, they didn't have a lot, a lot of good biochemical techniques, so they couldn't see right, the individual proteins that made up this C1 complex. Right? It's this multi-protein complex. So when they isolated it, they just gave it the name complement component number one. But it's actually, right, three different complement proteins in one. There's one molecule of what's called C1Q, two molecules of what's called C1R, and two molecules of what are called C1S. And inside the bloodstream at any one point in time, right, we have a lot of calcium in the bloodstream. We need calcium required for this complex to be able to stay bound to each other. So it's C1R, C1S, and C1Q. Uh, and I'm going to come back there for a minute. So what are the individual components doing and how they're working? Well, the first one and the more important one is the C1Q molecule. And it's the C1Q molecule that is going to be able to bind to the FC portion of the antibody molecule. So when we're thinking about this C1 molecule, right, and I'm looking over here and I'm calling this complement now, now we have the ability for this C1Q to be able to bind to the FC portion, right, and then C1R and C1S is involved in the complex. But it's actually C1Q that's involved with the binding. If you think about, well, let's sort of look at everything over here, right? So if we look at our model here, here's the C1 molecule, and here's C1Q, and here's C1R, and here's C1S, and it's big enough, right? It's this massive sort of a molecule. Right? It's got a very high molecular weight in terms of what it's going to do. It has a molecular weight of almost 600,000. Right? So you can see it under a, an electron microscope. And here's the C1R and here's the C1S. But C1Q, C1R, and C1S are all sort of together inside the C1 complex. The C1Q molecules themselves right, have this head region 
and then they have this stalk region. And C1R and C1S are nestled inside the head, inside the head region. Right? So it's this head region of C1Q out here, these globular heads that actually bind to the antibody molecule. So when you think about C1Q, right, think about uh, a, uh, a bouquet. I guess it's not a bouquet. Think about holding a bunch of tulips, right? Or a bunch of daffodils, right? Let's say you had five tulips that you're holding on to, right? So you have those tulips that you hold on to on the stem, and then you have the head portion, right, the, the nice red colors, or if it's a daffodil, the nice yellow covers, the yellow colors, and that's the head portion, right? So that's basically what it looks like. So the C1Q, the head region, is what's going to bind to the FC portion of the antibody molecule, right? So that's what C1Q is used for, to be able to recognize and bind to the, anti, uh, the FC portion of the antibody molecule. And as it turns out, that mannose binding lectin is very similar to C1Q. Right? The proteins are related to each other. So evolutionarily speaking, right, we have these two similar pathways right, with very similar molecules in each one of them. So C1Q needs to bind to at least two FC sites for activation to be able to take place. So if this C1 molecule right, with these C1Q pieces are out here and they're circulating inside the bloodstream, it's highly unlikely that an ant that the C1Q is going to be able to recognize at any one point in time multiple antibody molecules inside the bloodstream. So the only way, or most of the way, right, there are some certain pathological conditions where it can take place, but most of the time, right, C1Q needs to be cross-linked. It means it needs to bind at least two of its globular heads to become activated. And that can easily happen on a, on a pathogen that's coated with antibody molecules. Right? So C1Q could be able to come up, and once two of them become cross-linked, that's when C1 is going to become activated. Right? It's not going to bind to circulating immunoglobulin molecules. And when this cross-linking takes place, right, and that C1Q molecule is recognizing it, there's going to be a little bit of conformational change that's going to take place. Right? So that C1Q, those head portion of C1Q, they're going to open up a little bit. Right? So if we're activating here, right, we're going to get a little bit of conformational change, and that's going to expose right, C1R. And when C1R becomes exposed, that's when C1R or the C1 molecule is going to be able to activate C2. So that's going to be the change. That's going to be the difference. Right? So it's sort of up here like this. Conformational change takes place. Now C1R is going to be able right, to see the next molecule in the, in the pathway. Mannose binding lectin, right? the activity is very similar to C1. MBL binds to 
and then MAS2 and MASP3 are going to be able to bind. These are mannose binding lectin-associated serine proteases, right? They're very similar to C1R and C1S. So from an evolutionary point of view, right, we have these two parallel sort of tracks that are going to be able to be involved with recognition and then destruction of the activation. The other thing that's pretty interesting about this initial activation of the classical pathway is that it's going to happen usually with IgM. Remember we talked about IgM being the first, right, first immunoglobulin that's going to be produced, the first immunoglobulin that's going to be released by those B cells. So more than likely, the antibody that's going to be coding this pathogen is going to be an IgM molecule. And an interesting thing about IgM, IgM is going to be able to take two separate sort of conformations. In circulation, IgM sort of looks like what we've been talking about. Right? It's called the planar form. So you can see it right here. Right? It's this flat sort of a form. Once IgM binds to an epitope, Right? And we're going to usually have, right, it's going to be multivalent, so we're going to have a number of different epitopes on the surface. Then IgM is going to be, take on what's called this spider form. So when it's bound to antigen, right, it sort of scoots up on its hackles here, whatever hackles are, sort of scoots up on here. And now, right, remember these were all monomeric IgMs held together by the J chain. In this spider form, all those FC portions of the monomeric, right, the heavy chain, are now sort of close together and exposed, so that makes it really easy for C1Q to bind up here and recognize and that conformational change to take place. Right. We will finish this up on Wednesday, talking about complement molecules.